hey, newsflash, guys. There was a lot of garbage on TikTok. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 83. I've been talking today, because we recorded a few podcasts back-to-back, about bittersweet feelings, because we're coming up on the end of our Fassbender series. And although I imagine we're probably going to find more things to talk about, this may be for a while, maybe not, because an idea just popped into my head, but uh, maybe for a while, the last pieces of cinema. Today, we're doing pieces of cinema directing, and we're talking about the role of the director in making a great movie. Who is with us today? Hello, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carnally Cruz, the People's Champion. And America's sweetheart, Edwin Gomez, <laughs> is not with us, but we're going to get him to record some answers some of these questions and plug them in. And I'm Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. It's wonderful to have you with us. Let's just get right to it. This week, when you hear this, tonight, we're going to be showing Satoshi Khan's Tokyo Godfathers on 35mm. All of this is at the Secret Movie Club Theater. We're in December. We're showing a bunch of holiday or holiday-themed or movies that make us think of the holidays, whatever that beautiful abstract mind space is. We're showing Satoshi Khan's Tokyo Godfathers anime on 35 millimeter interestingly uh made from a john ford movie called three godfathers which i love i love that satoshi khan chose john ford and john ford himself made this movie twice which is fascinating uh he made it in the 1920s as a silent film or even the teens maybe and then he remade it in the 1940s and then satoshi khan made it in a japanese version in the 21st century then it's on a double bill with a totally dissimilar film bob clark's black christmas which is an awesome horror movie it's a feature version of that old campfire story. The killer is in the house. We've traced his call and he's in your home. But the way that it unfolds and the way that it's told is great and really will sort of surprise you. And for the first time since we've been back from the COVID shutdown, we get to fire up our 16 millimeters. So we have the 16 millimeter print coming to us from New Jersey. And then tomorrow night, December 4th at the Million Dollar Theater, we're showing a triple bill of just great auteur sneaky holiday movies. The Coen Brothers Hudsucker Proxy at 4.30 p.m. And then a double of Tim Burton. It's sort of been a sneaky Tim Burton series without people realizing it. We've shown quite a bit of Burton over the last stretch. And we are doing Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns, both on 35mm, two of Burton's greatest, both of which take place around Christmas time, interestingly. And then starting on Monday of next week, it's happening. We are entering the very final stretch, the final 100 yards if you will, of the Fassbender series. And we are showing Berlin Alexander Platz Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because it is a 15-hour miniseries that he made in a year in typical Fassbender style. I'm probably six months he made it. Three hours a night, we're going to have beer, we're going to have wine, we're going to have hopefully beer hall food. I might even get some German beer hall posters. And uh, we would love to have you. It leads up to an epilogue, which is one of the most amazing two hours of TV you're ever going to see. But to fully enjoy it, because it's so crazy. You really have to have seen the 13 hours prior. So we hope you'll join us for that. And as always, you can get tickets at Eventbrite. Just go Secret Movie Club and Eventbrite in your search engine. You can go to secretmovieclub.com, which has everything that we do. You can always write us a community at secretmovieclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com. And that's it. We have been talking over the last year about different aspects of cinema, really different job positions. And, you know, while I was introducing the topic today for the podcast, it hit me 
probably another pieces of cinema we could do would just be about the movie itself and about everything coming together and potentially positions we didn't even mention. Like we haven't necessarily talked about the unsung important, but the assistant director who is super important. Uh, we haven't talked about the gaffer who often, and, and again, I don't mean this disparagingly. I think I say this because I feel I might be guilty of this. But often when a director takes the cinematographer title, it's only because they have an amazing gaffer and they look at the gaffer and they say, well, the look I want is I think I want five K's and one K. And then the gaffer's like, okay. And then the gaffer goes and basically lights it the way a cinematographer would light it. And then they get a gaffer title instead of a DP title. That's not always fair, but I mean, a good gaffer is critical to the, we haven't really delved into things like the studio head. We haven't necessarily delved into even a job, you know, like the PA. But anyway, we might one day do all the jobs we didn't talk about in the whole movie as a whole. But this may be our final pieces of cinema. And the director, I said this in in a previous episode, but Orson Welles famously said that the only person on a movie set who doesn't need to know what they're doing is the director. Because (laughs) if the director or the producer or someone else hires everyone else well, then a director could have no idea and everyone else could go about doing their job and the movie still could get made. And it's funny when you hear that because Orson Welles in many ways is the patron saint of uh, filmmakers. But what Orson Welles then went on to say is, while that's true... And while a lot of directors get credit for things they probably shouldn't get credit for, which I actually think is also true, and I'm saying that as somebody who is director-centric, Orson Welles said, often my favorite movies are by directors. And he said the best directors, they know a little bit of everything. They have an incredibly strong voice. They have a point of view. They have a style. And they are the greatest of storytellers. So even though most directors don't necessarily rise to that level, he said the best movies are usually the ones directed by strong directors. So what are your thoughts on the director position? What do you think the job of the director? Because you're taught different things in film school and told different things. A lot of people like to tell the director a director who doesn't know really what a director can do. Oh, your job is to handle the performances. That's often something that's told to people. So they'll stay out of everyone else's business, which is totally not true. Yeah. I actually agree with Orson Welles a a lot on that. Wise words. Every other position is affected by the director and the director's ability can sometimes be both dependent and not dependent on how good everything else comes out to be. Because sometimes you can just have a really good actor who can surpass a bad director. but Or sometimes you get a bad director who will drag down a good actor. So the director is almost kind of the most nebulous part to like parcel out. It's easier to do it when a director has like a style that's obvious. Whether that comes to storytelling. But then that gets into things like script. When you get into visuals, that gets into director photography editing all these other things and so I do kind of wonder sometimes how you vote on best director versus best picture because (laughs) directing to me is kind of like best picture feels like a synthesis of everything else that's going on and the best directors know a little bit kind of what exactly what Orson Welles says know a little bit about everything and you know sometimes you have directors who are more comfortable with certain parts and I think that's fine I guess I probably usually think of directing mostly when you're on set directing is mostly about working with the actors and working with the image 
even though I get there is more to, to it than that because there's sound. The sound a lot of times is you're really just recording what's there and then you're actually working with it more later. Didn't David Lynch have another quote about getting everybody on the same path? Oh, yeah. Interesting. It was in David Lynch's Masterclass, which, uh, uh, you know, not that anyone asked me, we're not getting paid by Masterclass, just so people know. But when I saw that Martin Scorsese and David Lynch and Spike Lee and there were just Helen Mirren, all these people were doing Masterclasses, I thought, okay, you know what? I'll fork over whatever for a year membership because I want to hear what these people have to say. And of all the master classes I took, David Lynch's was one of the best. And the thing he said is he said, what directing is in a weird way is talking to all the different positions and telling them we're trying to get to this town and this town is along this road. And he said, you have to have about three or four conversations and if you do a good job as a director, by the third or fourth conversation, you notice that everybody on the crew is walking towards that road. And then you don't have to tell them anything because they know where you're going, where you're walking, and you can trust them. But if a director can't communicate that, then everyone, like some people are going to this town, other people are going backwards, other people are going another way. And he said, you get a really bad movie. So one of the arts of being a director is diplomatically finding the language of everybody and finding out how to get everybody to feel this is the road they want to go down. And I think in a way he's saying is everyone has to feel that the movie is the most important thing and telling that story and making that movie is the most important thing. And everyone has to know the style in which you're doing it. And then if you know that, then everyone's walking down the road in the same direction and you've done your job as a director and you can let people be totally creative free and you don't have to micromanage them because you're all walking down the same road. I totally agree with all that. I think this is one of those where there's a lot of very smart men and women, presumably, but unfortunately, women have been underrepresented. So I'm sure they're underrepresented in quotes about the art as well. But at least these guys have said some very smart things that I definitely 100% agree with. The director, probably along with the actor, those are the two most mythologized roles in movie making. The actors, because they're the face and the soul and the eyes of the movie, they, for many people, have become almost modern gods or modern demigods would probably be a better way. And we become obsessed with their lives and we make their lives miserable. And it, it's in some ways very toxic and dysfunctional. But those are the actors. The Directors have been mythologized as well, and sometimes unfairly to the detriment of everybody else. Oftentimes, people will think the director is the one who makes every creative decision on a film. The sole author. They're like a novelist. Which kind of goes into the idea of auteur theory. Which came about in the 60s and the 50s by the French writers of a great journal called Cahiers du Cinema, and they were Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard and Claude Charbol, and, and the editor was André Bazin. And then they went on to make their own movies, and Andrew Serres here in the United States. And there's a lot to auteur theory. But I think the problem that that happened post auteur theory is that people thought that every creative decision was the result of the director. And in fact, many times a good director knows what they're good at and a good director knows what they're bad at. And they rely on a team to if they're not a very visual thinker, they get an amazing cinematographer. If they're not a great editor, they get an amazing editor. If they're not an amazing with their music mind, they get a great music supervisor or a great composer. If they're not a good writer, and as a writer myself, the screenplay is hugely undervalued, in my opinion. And I think the writer 
sets the blueprint for the picture. And I think the writer is one of the most undervalued in everybody who works on a movie because the writer presents the story that everybody gets excited about. But anyway, needless to say, a good director usually knows how to frame a shot, knows how to edit, knows how to write, or at least contribute to a story, knows how to get good performances. And in the end, and I know this is going to sound trite, probably the best way I can describe the director is the director's the storyteller. The director is telling the story and the director has to figure out a way to get everybody else to figure out this is how we're telling the story. This is the story we're telling. These are the emotions we want. These are the surprises we want. And if everyone goes, oh, I want to tell that story, then you can make a great movie. No, I think you guys nailed it. I think the director has to be sort of the end all ultimate collaborator. Even if the if you believe in the auteur theory, they still have to be the person that can vocalize this thing that they want the end result to be between all these other talented, creative people who are making it happen with them. We've definitely mythologized the concept of the director. And in the case when there's like publicity tours where actors speak to the movie and sort of the experiences on it, I think the director is the next person that has a chance to sort of be in those things. But beyond that, it's sort of as if the rest doesn't exist, which is a shame because I think there's really interesting stuff to be found and the creative craftsmanships of everything else. Like we sort of talked about with like the gaffer and all these other positioned. I, honestly, the when a director wins at the Oscars, they should thank like the below the line <laughs> staff immediately because yeah, absolutely. it f- ceases to exist if that doesn't happen. But that's a different conversation. And their assistant director. Yeah, this is, I guess that's why they have to cut off the speeches. I think they nailed it. I think Lynch's thing about it is it's, it's basically to me, it's always been this sort of end all collaborator whose job is to orchestrate with everyone else how this end product that lives in in their head will be how it can be created and there's all these other people that are very talented in getting that done whether it's how you schedule something like that how you shoot something like that how you light something like that etc etc how you record something like that i think that was interesting at least in school for me is my film school everyone had to take the same courses the first year you couldn't declare a concentration and it was because a lot of people sort of had the wrong idea of what they thought directing was. They actually wanted to move the camera around. They actually wanted to do this and that. And so being forced into these different positions sort of forced your hand at having to learn all of the different aspects that create a film through small film sets and small crews. But you really learn how each person orchestrates and how they're sort of coming together to do some under the hopefully well-informed guys of a director. One of the stories I heard, and I don't mean to knock this because many great films have come out through what I'm about to talk about, but sometimes you can define what makes a good director through a story about what maybe makes a frustrating director. It's interesting, like negative space can create positive space. I've heard stories about a number of directors where the collaborators would say, what do you want here? And the director would say, I don't know. I'll know it when I see it. And all the collaborators on the set would get really frustrated because they really didn't know what the director wanted. And the director would say, go again. I don't know if we have it. I I can't explain to you what I want. And I've heard a lot of collaborators say they really enjoy, as long as they're not abusive about it, they really enjoy a director who says, okay, here's the frame. Here's where where the camera's going to go. Okay, well, that tells the production designer and the art directing team what they need to build and what they don't have to worry about. The director says, you know, I want it to be low-key lighting here or high-key lighting, or I'm looking for this kind of vibe or that kind of vibe without micromanaging. Okay, the cinematographer goes, okay, I got it, goes off. The director says, you know, I'm going to do a needle drop here. Uh, We're going to go slow motion. And then to the actors, too, the director isn't being a puppet master because I've heard actors hate that when directors, not all actors, Harrison Ford famous 
honestly, and I got to hear him talk once, said he and Meryl Streep did not mind being given line readings by directors. They often would say, just give me the line reading and I'll, I'll do the line reading. But a lot of actors hate that. You know, they're like, hey, and so a director has to know how to get the best out of an actor and make the actor feel like a co-storyteller. But I think what can be frustrating is when a director doesn't know what they want and everyone's sitting on set wasting time and reshooting and reshooting and doing the camera from a thousand different positions. And the director's just like, when I feel the magic happen, I'll let everybody know. I don't want to dissemble and I don't want to be cute by half. I am very director oriented, as evidenced by the fact that Secret Movie Club does a director of the year. We did Kurosawa. We did Kubrick. We're wrapping up with Fassbender. These are three filmmakers right away who have very strong personalities. And often one of the things you hear about great directors is when when people ask, well, what was it like? to hang out. You hear this all the time. What was it like to hang out with Martin Scorsese? It was kind of like watching a Martin Scorsese movie. You hear that. And I think the funny thing about what they're saying is the director's personality and the way they tell a story is just translated cinematically, but you sit with them and you just get it unadulteratedly. My favorite director, if I've said it once, I've said it (laughs) more than once. It's Mr. Sam Raimi. I love that man. I want to give him a little smooch on his head for all the joy he's brought me. I think Sam is a storyteller who encompasses all of the things that I like, the visual nature of his storytelling, the visceral nature of his storytelling, the kinds of stories he tells. I think when, especially as he got older and got better at working with actors, he was able to elicit, I think especially in the first two Spider-Man movies, these really, some people call them campy, but I think they're intentionally like hyper earnest performances that just grant the movies a really thick emotionality. I think a lot of my favorite directors kind of walk this line of having things that are both very broadly popular and then having things that are known as being quite a bit more gruesome and then having things that are both of those at the same time. Another director I love is John Carpenter, who I think absolutely encompasses that. He has a very different visual style, but it's a very still distinct visual style. It's a much more classical visual style, a lot of incredible uh, wide shots that just give you sort of the scope of everything that's going on in the room. I don't want to create a false dichotomy, and I'm not going to. Just like music, just like reading, just like art, just like anything, everyone has their own tastes. And so they're going to gravitate towards different directors like you would gravitate to different painters or different bands or different authors or whatever. But you said something interesting that you like directors who have, in the best sense of the word, a great commercial sense, but also maybe something that's a little more intense and idiosyncratic. And it's interesting because sometimes people will be all about the art film director and other times people will be all about the summer blockbuster director. You know, the James Camerons, the Steven Spielbergs, the Peter Jacksons, the Michael Bays. My third guy I was going to mention was Mr. Spielberg. What do you think unifies? Because what you said makes sense to me. If you said Raimi, Carpenter, Spielberg, without being able to verbalize it, I can understand who you are. They create things that speak to, I think, like my point of view in terms of storytelling, which is things that are fun, but things that are also really uh, up. <laughs> and I think I'm attracted to things that are very dark because of, to be honest, my like emotional issues, because I think there's like a catharsis there and an exploration. And so I wonder to what degree these guys have those types of issues, anxiety and whatnot. And I think like when you pair that stuff with maybe more broadly appealing, maybe it makes it more palatable to a certain degree. I mean, I still also like stuff that's just like 
kind of miserable <laughs> sometimes. And then I also like stuff that's just purely fun. But I think those guys have this great synthesis of those two things that I really like. I dig what they do, and they're doing the kind of things that I would want to do with movies and the kind of range that they've been able to have in the types of stories they've told while still, you know, I think Raimi is the most visually distinct of the three, but they're all like have pretty distinctive visuals and pretty distinctive types of directing and types of stories they like to tell. Yeah, I think my three, I'll do a cop out and say that the three that I love, because I, I think in a given day it shifts. Similar to Connor, there's something that has to connect to you. In terms of picking a director on a personal level that sort of expands their filmography, they have to speak to you on a level that is both something you want to make, but also just something that fundamentally sits in your core emotionally and works. And I think people argue, arguing personal stuff is so weird because it doesn't like trying to comprehend why something speaks to someone is, I think... A great conversation to have, but when it becomes this weird pointing of opinions of why they're wrong is futile because the thing that makes you you, you can't fight in terms of how you experience art. I think people that sort of walk that line for me, I, I like, I'm very drawn to filmmakers who are clearly fans of, of film themselves, but also people who are seemed unconstrained by genre and sort of let the story speak to the type of film they're going to make. It always feels like their movie but it's always a surprise what type of movie you're going to get. My biggest thing right now of someone who I felt like I kind of grew up with and especially was obsessed with in pre-film school into film school that has now sort of found his way into the to the mainstream thing would be Bong Joon-ho. And he walks a line of every single one of his things. I think if you were unaware of who was maybe behind things, every one of his features feels very distinctly separated. But once you understand who's behind them, there are all these through lines that make sense, whether it's in the way he moves his camera or the way he writes. Which I think also unique, I think I am attracted to the writer-director dynamics and that type of control from pre-production to production in terms of you're writing it, you're directing it, I think is fascinating because it's something that I like to do, but it's also something that's immensely challenging. If you were to watch The Host, which is this, or if you watch Memories of Murder, which is sort of this police procedural about a serial killer, and then you move to The Host, which is this monster movie that has like a family element to it, to Mother, which is sort of this mystery thriller into Snowpiercer, which is this comic adaptation or graphic novel adaptation, sort of post-apocalyptic action movie is not fair, but it has moments of action. And then Okja, which feels like this Spielberg epic about a child and this creature that they love. And it's also <laughs> this like very dark thing about the meat industry and sort of capitalism. And then Parasite, which just speaks to sort of class, different class values and always shifting genre, but never predictable i think moving from movie to movie trying to guess what someone like that would do next is impossible and in the same vein as that i'm a noted edgar wright fan and i think he's actively worked to make sure that his stuff is not defined by a specific genre at this point he doesn't want to be known as the comedy guy he doesn't want to be known as this and that he seems to make sure that each sort of individual work stands on its own but is filtered through his very stylized lens and kind of worldview and then at the same time someone like Jim Jarmusch is someone that I am obsessed with and it's kind of the complete opposite thing he jumps genres and moves between things but he's always this very character piece focused filmmaker that I think is trying to figure out himself as much as like the world in any given thing but is also uninterested in what anyone else thinks about that and the way he portrays it because you get something like Patterson which is when explained, sounds like the worst movie. <laughs> and yet, yet it's one of the greatest movies he ever made. Possibly his best. I think all three of them are very talented world builders. Where If the thing that they've created works for you, you feel like you're just living in it for a few hours. 
and you don't really want to leave. I think that's really difficult to do. And they're especially talented at it. And that's sort of what draws me into them. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing Connors and hearing yours. When you say Bong Joon-ho, Edgar Wright, Jim Jarmusch, that says something too. If you're a film person, you're like, oh, okay, I got you. I got you. It's the best thing because like Connor and I like, are like who we would list as favorites may be different, but at the same time, I think there's so much overlap to what we love. And I think the, the beautiful part of it all is that these people that seem completely different still pull from the same types of people that love all these things. I mean, I still love all those guys and I think vice versa applies. You know, my top three are Leone, Tarantino, and um, I want to say John Landis, but um, I'm going to give it to Spielberg. But uh, what I like about Leone's work is you know what he's prepared to do. You know the style of genre he's going to make, you know, specifically spaghetti westerns. And it's all about the right movement and shots he pulls off, especially with the eyes, the the face, you know, the whole setting, the music and everything like that. Like, I know I'm watching a Leone film, but one of the few movies that's not like a Leone movie is probably his only non-Western movie, Once Upon a Time in America, which is still visually beautiful, but I still feel a Leone vibe because even though it's not a Western movie, I'm still watching a Sergio Leone movie. And Tarantino, of course, so there's nothing to, to say because everything he does is right on point, how he wants to be an actor. He puts it all his movies, how he uses music from other movies, how he brings the pop culture into his films, films that have never been heard by anyone, only he does, and put it in, in his films. Well, as for Spielberg, I think Connor said it well, and Spielberg just, uh, you know, does what he does, you know. Of course, he's mainly known for sci-fi and then, like, unofficial trilogies he does, like, unintentionally, I want to say, because, you know, he did the 9-11 trilogy, he did the Chase trilogy, he did the Duel trilogy. I don't know if he does it intentionally, but it's something he does. Also known for bad fathers. That too. <laughs> Follow-up question, what do you think makes a good director, just in general? Just his style of filmmaking, his trademarks, the sets, the acting, the dialogue, the script, the editing, all that. Like Connor, <laughs> like Daniel, like Edwin, I have numerously stated, I think, throughout our pod recordings, but my three have been pretty steady for a while now. Akira Kurosawa, Jean Renoir, and John Ford. Those are my three favorite directors. I love Bergman, but it's like Daniel said. I mean, we're just giving an example to maybe describe who we are, what we respond to in directing and filmmaking, but I could go forever. I mean, Murnau, Fassbender, you know, if you let me have 10, it would, you'd get out. I mean, my next two would probably be Murnau and Fassbender. Spielberg would easily probably be the next one. You know, Scorsese, just Hitchcock, Kubrick. Anderson, Anderson, Anderson. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but we're not doing that. We're not doing a top 10. We're talking about three. So, and for me, Akira Kurosawa, I've said it many times, my Desert Island movie is Seven Samurai. I told that story a podcast or two ago about the guy who came to Night of the Hunter, Steve, and told me the crazy story about the homeless man and everything. And Steve said there are very few artists who transcend. And the three he named when he was talking to me, I didn't even tell this part of the story, is he said Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, and Kurosawa. And I was like, who is this man who's <laughs> talking to me? And what he meant by that is he said in Dostoevsky, Kurosawa, and Shakespeare, every character 
has their reasons for being the way they are. Whether they're ostensibly a villain or a hero, they're incredibly complex. I remember once a uh, Indian woman, by which I mean from India, she checked me because I was talking about how much I love the Mahabharata, which is this very famous Indian epic that the Bhagavad Gita is the middle of the Mahabharata. And it's incredible. You should all, if you read it, you know, it's, it's huge. And I was talking about it like Americans are wanting to do. And she checked me and she said, okay, I like that you like the Mahabharata, but your understanding of it is very Western. She said, the point of the Mahabharata is that there's very little that separates the bad guys from the good guys, that in the good guys, there's a lot that's bad. And in the bad guys, there's a lot that's good. And that balance is what the Mahabharata is about, not about good guys and bad guys, which is very Western. And I was like, whoa, you know, she was absolutely right. And I felt really embarrassed that I had been opining about an Indian epic, not being Indian and having missed all that nuance and subtlety. And I, I was like, oh, why do you even open your mouth? But I'm glad that she checked me on that. And I think that what she was saying and what Steve was saying is when you read the works by the greatest, they're very complex and they give full humanity to everybody. And they almost have a worldview that you're, you, you, you're like, these movies are incredible, but... I got to really wrestle with what these movies are doing. And I think also what maybe unifies John Ford and Jean Renoir and, and Kira Kurosawa is their humanism, which I very much respond to. I am not a pessimist. I am not a cynic. I've said this many times. My favorite works are by people who take you through hell. But in the end, they say yes. They say yes to existence and they affirm it. And I'm very moved by that. And as you guys were saying, it, it all goes back to what resonates with you. Spinoza, the philosopher, said, know the worst, but believe in the best. And I am very moved by that. And Spinoza also said, interestingly, and Spinoza was a Jew uh, and Spinoza was a Jew who came up with a philosophy of God that offended everybody. He was heretical to the Jews. He was heretical to the Christians, heretical to everybody. But, you know, in his ethics, he defined God in this beautiful, beautiful way. But Spinoza said that he felt that the virtues of Christianity were divine, as stated by John, which were charity and justice. And he said, wherein charity and justice dwell, therein dwells Christ. Wherein charity and justice dwell not, therein Christ dwells not. And I think what he was saying was he was trying to speak to Christians. He was a Jew trying to speak to Christians in Europe. But I think his point was humanism in the end is empathy and charity and an understanding of the fundamental equality of all living things. And when filmmakers achieve that, it's very moving and beautiful to me. With John Ford and Jean Renoir, they, they made things in every genre. They were consummate filmmakers, but they didn't judge. They didn't judge. And uh, with Jean Renoir, I think what I love in filmmakers are they're incredible at their craft. They're always experimenting, always trying to do their best, and they're not judging. They're not judging. They're making a cinema of empathy, and I really respond to that. All right, guys, any final words on directing? Don't be, don't be weird. <laughs> yeah, as always, it's an oceanic topic. We didn't even get, we didn't even get three feet deep into the ocean of the Mariana Trench that is directing. There's so many filmmakers, as Connor intimated at, you know, there are underrepresented voices. We haven't even had that conversation. What about the black voices, the female voices, the LGBTQ voices, the Asian voices, the voices 
of any kind that have been under underrepresented in an industry where white male heterosexual voices have dominated and told stories, but those are not even all the stories that need to be told. So, I mean, we, we need to have another thing about all the, the voices that are out there or voices that need to be given the platform to tell their stories. So please understand this is just an introduction to directing. There's one director that went deep into the Mariana Trench, just saying, Cameron. Oh. And he, yeah, he's a hell of a director too, by the way. And to a certain degree, a lot of our episodes are sort of director-centric anyway. So we, this feels like a topic we've been before and that will be kind of here often. Pop culture and final thoughts. Edwin, why don't you kick it off? Well, as you can see, I'm at my local cinema. <laughs> we can see it. The audience won't be able to see it. So when Edwin called in earlier, let's tell the story, dude. When you called in earlier, you were on the Metro heading from Hollywood to uh, we, we won't give away where your GMA lives in case someone hunts you down later on. But you were heading out of Hollywood to uh, go see GMA for Thanksgiving and now tell us where you're at. I'm at a local movie theater that I've been going to since 2005 or probably earlier than that. I saw a lot of cool movies here as a kid. Uh, one being uh, Indiana Jones and uh, Crystal Skull. I saw that here. I'm not going to take that bait. Yeah, uh, well, I'm sorry. I saw it here. I saw okay. it here. We were, we were all young ones. <laughs> Anyways, I'm here. I'm here to see Ghostbusters. But I, I, I've, I've been on a John Cusack run lately. I recently watched a movie called Class with uh, Andrew McCarthy and Rob Lowe and Jacqueline Bissett. Oh, dude, famous VHS cover. I, I, I could tell it's the poster of the, of the DVD. That was famous when I was a little kid. Who's nude in it? Is it McCarthy? McCarthy. Yeah, it's a pretty... Interesting movie. It's strange, but I dug it. I watched it two times already. I watched a movie called Hot Pursuit and then uh, Better Off Dead. Oh, Better Off Dead's a classic. And then, uh, yeah, I'm just here you know, waiting for a friend and um, drinking an icy. I got the chance to see Licorice Pizza last week. Which I saw uh, first. Which I saw first. Let's just not, get that clear. I saw it first. first. Um, unfortunately, he didn't choose to speak about it. So here I am to have my spotlight. Ah. 70 millimeter print at the Westwood Village, which is my first time at that theater. Gorgeous theater. Great print. Comfy seats all around. Great experience. I think it's in the same vein as Richard Linklater's Days of Confused. It's this coming of age thing. It's got that kind of thing where like every moment feels like it could be its own movie and I would watch it. And it's one of the shorter movies. It's only a little over two hours and I would have gladly have spent three or four hours within it. And I think we're going to hear a lot of conversations about this thing come end of year list and award stuff and Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman. Bring the noise. I want to shout out two things. One, I've been playing this game. It's a couple of years old now called Control, which a friend of mine compared to Twin Peaks, and it, it isn't really, but it is to the degree that it's about the fictional Federal Bureau of Control, which is this organization that works in almost like the X-Files. It's like a paranatural, uh, supernormal, I think I mix those up, uh, organization within the government, and you just go around this giant government building that's always shifting and it's a pretty kind of standard third person shooter to be fair on like the actual gameplay level but the story is really cool and fun do you think the fbi because it's funny because in twin peaks the one of the things is the fbi has a secret unit for a sort of supernatural transcendent like the blue rose cases which makes it fascinating when you watch twin peaks do you think that really exists probably i think there's been various ones over the years i think we know for a fact that there were um parts of the fbi FBI that were investigating UFOs. But um, I also saw Spencer, the Princess Diana movie. I thought it was great. It's got a great score by Johnny Greenwood. That's the thing I've been thinking about the most. It 
kind of reminds me of like a more feminine equivalent to something like Uncut Gems, where it's just like this two hour long panic attack. It's a very uh, distressing movie, but a very good one. And Kristen Stewart's great in it. And find me at twitch.tv slash kind of cruise. Damn, Johnny Green was on a run right now. Yeah. His score is like half improvisational jazz and half like the Haunted Mansion from (laughs) Super Mario Brothers. And it somehow works. I have been rereading Shakespeare and I'm coming to my final two plays. I saved Hamlet and King Lear for the end. So I'm reading Hamlet. I just finished Othello and it got me going, you know, in American movie making specifically. And even worse, if you go to film school or you take classes, they teach you a three act structure, act one, act two, act three. And reading Shakespeare, I found, and maybe it's because I'm contrarian or I'm an idiot or whatever, because I get the three-act structure. I really do. And it's almost semantic, because if you understand storytelling, you understand where things fall. But Shakespeare always wrote in five acts. And I believe five-act structure for a long time was the theatrical structure. And I actually find myself, I click in much more with five-act structure than I do with three-act structure. And again, I think maybe that's just because I'm contrarian and I hated the reduction of storytelling to three acts. Okay, act one, you should hit the ground running and set everything up, every character, every A, B, and C story of the movie. Act two actually escalates things for act three, which is your midpoint. Act three needs to always be dynamite. That's the midpoint of your movie. And then something happens where act four is a new escalation, which sort of exceeds with the act three climax. And then you hit act five where everything collapses in on itself and you get a culmination of, and I really respond to it. And I understand that all that three act structure is, is it basically a condensation of five act structure? I don't know for the writers out there. I don't know if anyone wants to write in and be like, ah, shut the hell up. But I actually find five act structure to be much more freeing. If you want to be both a great storyteller in a commercial sense of a, you know, attention driven plot. And yet you want to find a way to complicate it, do some character stuff. I just five act structure allows me to do that where three act structure again it's semantic and James Cameron said something in his master class which was great where he said that he often writes movies in four acts or four and a half acts and he, he's like oh huh that's funny and he, he pointed out aliens as the classic example he said that in three act structure the ending of aliens is sort of when Ripley and Newt get out but then suddenly Ripley fights mama alien on the ship and he's like oh a new act and he said he loves that because he's like, my, my scripts aren't really, or Titanic or whatever. The ending would be the Titanic sinking, but then actually you get Jack and Rose on the door that they both should have fit on or whatever. I think what you said about semantics, I think it's like different names for the same thing, honestly. Like I was just like, I'd forgotten what five act structure was. So I was looking at it and I was like, this looks like basically what I do. <laughs> like, like this looks like it's more or less. I think it's just what people, what you're most comfortable with. You know what I mean? It's like Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> the rules just right the important thing about writing structure is you gotta have a code you have to have a structure i think that's important but what structure it is i think is less important yeah that's a good point it's like music it's the key signature most music is written in four four time but they're different time signatures and if you really understand them but no i agree with you i think the weird thing is that i used to again because i'm an idiot i used to not want to think about structure 
And I'd be like, it's just going to come out of me. But I would revise and revise and revise and revise. And inevitably, if anything good came out of it, it would conform to structure. But I just had ignored it until I discovered it. And I think that knowing it and plotting it out that way at least gets you to a revisable point quicker. And then you can actually make the thing better in a quicker, shorter amount of time. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Thank you, all of you. We're in our final month. Let's end 2021 great. And within a week or so of hearing this podcast, Secret Movie Clubbers, you will know our January through March. And we've got got some announcements. Well, what's confirmed? What, what is it's it? It's Mamma Mia. That's not Mamma Mia. And Mamma Mia. Here we go again. But uh, there's some exciting announcements you're going to find out about it January through March. We'll announce it soon. As always. You can find and get tickets at Eventbrite and just go Eventbrite Secret Movie Club. Go to secretmovieclub.com. Uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. This episode, as always, was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Secret Movie Club Podcast 84 will be about cinema on television. And we've talked around it a little bit in the last few podcasts. You'll notice in December, Secret Movie Clubbers, we're showing Berlin Alexander Platz. We're showing Fanny and Alexander. We're showing The Decalogue. That is by design. Actually, it was a series I always wanted to do. We're calling cinema on television anything where movie makers went to TV to tell a bigger story. And it was almost like getting even more cinema. And it's some of the greatest works these movie makers ever did. As example, more recently by Connor and I always geeking out about David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return, which was 14 hours or 16 hours, whatever it was, but was really meant to be consumed as a feature film that was 16 hours long. And you do kind of consume it that way. So we're going to talk about cinema on television. That's our next podcast. All right, guys. It was wonderful to have you. Have a great week. Bye-bye. See you on the flip.